Welcome to the Post Talk Live podcast, where we host live salon gatherings for curious people around the world. Hosted by me, Susan McTavish Best. Let's talk about adventures in couples. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> adventures in coupledom. Mm-hmm. What's going on these days? Oh, uh, Triples, quadruples, monogamy. Yeah. What are the trends? Yeah, couples are not always uh, uh, couples. There's all sorts of trends um, that are going on. Uh, where should we start? Well, one is, I think I'm going to channel my colleague, uh, who is a, uh, my colleague, Dr. Amy Moore, is at Chapman University. Uh, and uh, she has this great thing that she'll do. And she'll say, I'm curious, who here um, knows someone who uh, ha- owns a cat? Just by a show of hands. Okay. You have two. <laughs> you have two. So the same number of Americans who have ever been in an open, uh, who have ever been in a consensually non-monogamous relationship, it's one in five, is the number who own a cat. Wow. So if you, if you know you someone. You haven't pulled out that statistic yeah. <laughs> on me before. Always something new. So if you know someone who's owned a cat, you probably know someone who at some point in their life have been in a, an open, some kind of non-monogamous, a consensually non-monogamous relationship. Say again? Yeah, it's no, not the same cat people. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Clarification. That's not cat people necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what we're seeing with non-monogamy is that it's, it's unclear if the rates are on the rise. And now that's people who have ever done it at some point in their life. But we are seeing that people are testing the sort of borders. I, I hesitate to use the word boundaries, but the borders of what they want their relationships to look like. And we are seeing uh, a sort of sea change and people asking for more different things in their relationships. This must involve a lot more talking. A lot more talking. If it's going to work well, perhaps. Yeah, a lot more open conversation about what it is. that. And, partic- and actually, to your point, in non-monogamous relationships, you really need that communication. Right. I mean, I actually, I think everyone, even if you're in a monogamous relationship, we can learn a lot. Do you have data of that post-COVID? Because presumably people had a lot of time to talk. Mm-hmm. We, have, um, we have a little bit. What we do have is we ask people about um, taking mental health, like taking care of your mental health. Mm. And uh, particularly ongoing the therapy. And what I think is so interesting is we're seeing it's actually unusually high in this city. Um, but the number of people who are, are people saying... people going to therapy? Yeah, people <laughs> going to therapy. And, but people saying that they value it in their own lives, that they say, okay, I value more sort of my mental well-being. Um, but also about 40% of people in, in Los Angeles said that they um, want their partner to take their mental health really seriously as well. So people are talking much more openly. I mean, you think 10 years ago, if you went on a first date and you asked someone about like, do you have anxiety? Do you have depression? Have you been on a, do you go to a therapist? That would seem so unusual. The conversations have just shifted. People openly talk about their well-being and about fighting depression and anxiety and mental health. Um, there's just been a sea change. You can come with that. baggage, but you need to, you know, be working on it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I think that's the big thing. We're recognizing that everyone's got some kind of baggage, but are you are you taking it seriously in your life? So a lot of people on the dating market are saying they, they want to see examples of how their oh. potential partners are. Like, I want to know that you're in therapy. I want to know that wow. you're working through your stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Uh, shifting somewhat, but still in <laughs> couples, uh, baby talk. Oh, I love it. Why do people do baby talk? Why do you do it, Susie, Susie? Uh, So we know that people, (laughs) we know that that people do it. Uh, And actually, I did this study. This is a true story. I did this study. I lived with a couple in graduate school who were friends of mine. And they used to sometimes baby talk to each other. And I called a friend of mine, Rose Sokol Chang, who's an authority on uh, parentese. When babies, parents do it to babies, you say, it's important. It's actually can be quite important for babbling and for learning language. And you, you know, you say, what do you want? The baby want the cookie? You want the cookie? And I called my colleague Rose and I said, why would two people who are having sex with each other do baby talk to each other? And she's like, what? And like, what is going on? I was like, but why, why would they do this? And then she said, and why are you whispering? I was like, because they're in the other room and I need an answer. <laughs> and um, so, and it was really interesting. And they were friends, wonderful friends of mine to this day, but they would go back and forth and say, like, do you want ice cream? I'll get you the ice cream. Oh, who's the ice cream? Who wants the ice cream? And I, at one point I remember said, I'll get you the goddamn ice cream. Just stop. <laughs> and and what was interesting is what we found is pretty high numbers of people do this at some point, and it's about um, what researchers call making special. And in relationships, you do all sorts of things, whether you realize it or not. There's something that's unique to the couple or unique to the relationship. Nicknames, pet names. Nicknames, pet noises, names, inside guess, jokes. Yeah. yeah. And that those actually become important because it's a touch point of something that we know, that it's our kind of their little fun secrets. Um, and it's also just playful. I mean, part of, the, part of what we think is going on with baby talk is it reduces conflict. 
It's a way to kind of like lower the temperature. Um, and there's a lot of different examples of things we do that. And primates do it too. Bonobos famously will, they're in a fruit patch, a prim our primate cousins, and they get too excited and there's a potential for an argument over a fruit and they, um, they stimulate each other's genitals. So different animals have different strategies. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, is infidelity genetic? Mm. So... Yes and no. So we did a study um, several years ago on a gene called the dopamine receptor gene, DRT4, and it was associated with uh, infidelity. And it was so people who had the gene were 50% more likely to commit infidelity. So and that doesn't mean they necessarily fell out of love with their partner. Oh, another question. Okay. Oh, there's so many questions. Yes, that's right. So the one is, so there we, people have this gene and 50% uh, more likely to do it when they did it. Did they anyone did it more know often. there was an infidelity gene here? Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, we're, we're a little cautious in the... Okay, Mr. DARPA. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that same gene, actually, many of you will be, it's the same gene that's associated with alcoholism and uh, gambling uh, addiction. So risk, risk. Sensation seeking. Also yeah, possibly yeah. sexting. Yeah. No, so when we did this study, I, we were slammed with email. People were calling the office and emailing and saying, can, can I have, can you test me? Can you test my partner? Um, and I thought, like, these are in ethical waters I never expected to be in. Um, but the problem is people have that gene, but a lot of them exhibit, so there's plenty of people who have it who never commit infidelity, never abuse alcohol. And there's plenty who don't have it who commit infidelity. For the point Susan just said, so we know in a, in a recent paper we published in the Journal of Sex Research, we found with my colleague Dylan Selterman, um, we found about eight reasons that people commit infidelity. And sometimes it's about falling in love with someone else. Sometimes it's about not loving your partner. But what we found is a lot of it is, so in the 15 years ago, the research on infidelity all talked about um, what was called a deficit model in relationships. People cheat because there's something wrong with their relationship. Most research, I shouldn't say that. There's some people who still subscribe to that model. They're just wrong. And so there's, there's um, but what we understand, what, what I would uh, argue is that today we have a better understanding that there's all sorts of situational factors. So when we look at the infidelity literature, there's a lot of people who say, uh, two-thirds of people in therapy for this infidelity and couples therapy say they would never have predicted their own infidelity. So a lot of people would say, well, I didn't expect it, but I was on this trip and I was down at the bar because I was bored and I had, or I was out dancing with friends. And I think it's a really interesting question. I've, I've really come to believe that if you are concerned about infidelity in your relationship, we all have the capacity to stray on a partner. Every Humans around the world have that capacity. We have to really think about not putting ourselves in situations that make that easy for any of us to have that capacity. So it's a little bit about modifying our own behaviors, right? And that's not to say, I'm not saying that doesn't mean you should never go out dancing with your friends. It's, that's not, but... The, but be self-aware. Be self-aware, yeah. Be self-aware. Mm -hmm. Mike Pence's model of... Mike Pence... He was my governor. I know Mike Pence's model, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. he might have dinner with women with other people there and go with his, home with his wife. A, yeah. So his public drive, yeah, or his wife. Yeah. yeah. His public statements. I think that's a. I think it's a. You're right. So we have uh, the Kinsey Institute. We launched a new partnership with the business school that it's at IU. It's the Kelly School of Business called the Kinsey Kelly Center for Gender Equity and Business. And what you're bringing up is exactly this question of particularly men in authority if in in certain positions as Mike Pence has famously said in interviews, uh, wouldn't take meetings with women who, and is without another woman in the room or without other people in the room, and sometimes including his wife, uh, raises, I mean, a, a really interesting questions of someone, you know, your vice president of the United States and your wife has to be there for a business affairs meeting. Um, or the woman doesn't get the meeting. Exactly. Um, so I think that's a, I agree with you. I'm not, I don't disagree with you. That's an extreme example of a barrier of, in terms of all sorts of things. I think that there is a huge gray area between saying, I'm going to be a little bit self-aware if I have a partner at home and I'm going to go out drinking into three in the morning, dancing with my friends, and I'm not going to take a meeting at work with someone of a different gender. And I, I do see what you're saying, and I think as a thought exercise, it's important. But in the real practical lives, there's an ocean between those two examples. Um, and, and I think the question is, where, where can we be aware of not putting ourselves, or, or if, you don't, if you don't mind, but we all, if we know we have that capacity, how do we not put ourselves in situations that can become problematic? Hmm? Yeah. So the question, for those that couldn't hear, is this question is, do we see big gender differences, particularly in terms of men and women? 
in terms of some of those motivations for infidelity. And um, not huge differences. So there are some. Uh, there's, uh, for one of the larger ones in that study was um, infidelity for um, where you're kind of setting up your next relationship. So in some cases, it's lining up a plan B. Um, and I think, if I remember correctly, women were a little bit more likely than men in the study to do that. Um, but future thinking women, future planning thinking, yeah. ahead at all But times. men were a little bit more the opportunities. And now, but that could also be another gendered effect. So men were more likely to have infidelity because of opportunity, like they had too much to drink or something. But the one possibility is, well, maybe men take more business trips on average than women and things like that. So there could be other factors that are other kind of gendered factors going on. What's interesting is that when we look at the stuff on inf- the literature on infidelity, uh, there is a classic gender difference between men and women, and that's that women are more upset by emotional infidelity and men are more upset by sexual infidelity. But when a lot of new research is done, if you give people a third option and you say either, the gender difference goes away. So what, what happens is that most people assume if you have a really close partner that's emotional infidelity, you assume there's a sexual and erotic component. And if you have sexual infidelity, you assume that you occasionally talk to the person and there's an emotional component. So that kind of goes away. So there's some interesting nuances in that, in that data. Mm. Is, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, go for it. How do relationships fit into infidelity? Like, what would you, mm-hmm. how does that work? So the question yeah. is, where do open relationships fit into infidelity? I love that question. I think it's an important one. And what we know from the studies that we've been doing and others have been doing on polyamory, open relationships, different kinds. Polyamory is one kind, poly, plural, amory, love. So that's sort of the idea that you have multiple romantic bonds. That's not the same as a sexually open relationship, but Dan Savage calls monogamish, right? That you might have a primary bond, but you have sex with other partners. So infidelity can totally happen in consensually non-monogamous relationships because what infidelity is about is a betrayal. It's a breaking the rules of whatever your relationship is. So if you're in a, in a relationship that's non-monogamous, but you say you can only have sex with someone else if you use condoms. You can only have sex with someone else if it happens once. Actually, in the anthropological literature, this is the case. Many societies, people know their, parent, their partners will stray, but there's all sorts of rules of not too close to the home, not the same person. Yeah, no kissing, exactly. Uh, interesting, in, in hookups and casual sex, nine out of, one out of ten people won't kiss on the mouth because they think it's too uh, romantic. So there's all sorts of, well, we can talk more about kissing. I, I, I digress. I get excited. And, um, and so, but we know that even in, these, in open relationships, there's real clear rules about what is, it's not a free, it, it's some people it is, I shouldn't say that, but mo- for the most part, it's not a free-for-all. There's still a structured relationship. There's a love. There's other things that our, our talented friends were singing about. There's, there's emotion at stake. There's caring. There's investments. There's love. People do way more intense things for love than they do for sex. People kill for love. They generally don't kill for sex. Um, so that there's still rules so that uh, they just get structured very differently about what does it mean? When is it okay? I still have to be prioritized even if you have other partners, if there's that kernel of a core relationship. Do we know if other animals have rules like that? Oh, um, they, in species, so humans are somewhat unique in this, in this regard. So among mammals, uh, about 4% are monogamous or socially monogamous. So biologists talk about, oh, we're going to get in the weeds. I'm sorry. So we talk about monogamy. There's two kinds. There's social monogamy, intense pair bond, what we would call romantic love. And then there's sexual monogamy, which is sexual fidelity. Um, so when we talk about it popularly, actually often uh, I'll find people are sometimes talking about one versus the other. And I go, well, well, clarify, let's clarify. So in socially monogamous species, about uh, 4% of mammals are monogamous, but 15% of primates, our cousins, are monogamous. So humans uh, engage in this um, social monogamy, these pair bonds, where you can see it. So Susan's question is, where else do we see some of that? Or birds actually do really wonderful examples. 90% of birds are monogamous for a breeding season. Some last a a lifetime or multiple seasons, but often it's a season. And I'll never forget once I I went to a school in upstate New York, and I was watching these red-winged blackbirds, and these, uh, it was a mating pair. You know, they're all black. They have the little uh, red uh, epithets, and uh, you have an outfit like this. It's gorgeous, a little red and yellow. <laughs> and, and you have this. Um, they have these beautiful colors. And uh, the male and female, the male flew away, and another male came in and tried to mate. And then he came rushing back in, and the two males were grappling each other, and they fell right into the weeds in this pond. And only one came out. 
Uh, and that's, the biologists often say Mother Nature is red in tooth and claw. And that expression means that the natural world, even in birds, that in those cases of social monogamy, the, the, it's so intense, that bond, that they'll fight to the death to protect it. Well, not that about... I recommend that. <laughs> um, you'll let me know when. Oh, should we? Yeah, loves. You want to ah, go for it? For Here it. we go. Yeah. yeah. With skin hunger. Thank y'all. <laughs> I was about to ask for a little bit of yeah. love. Okay. This is called Libra Scale. <laughs> Said you do the things you want, you move the way you are now. You thought we didn't know, but baby, you're the problem. Just meet me in the middle. Don't make me act a little like you. Ginger man, ginger man, ginger my baby. Ginger my baby Ooh, ah. Ginger my baby Ooh, ah. Calling me your love ain't the same I can see your picture in the frame Makes me wonder why you even came Yeah, who summoned you? Trying to play the fool to your voodoo Wondered if they'd act you like they do me For needing your arms Just meet me in the middle Don't make me act a little like you Ginger man, ginger man, ginger my baby Ginger my baby, oh ah. Ginger my baby, oh ah. Taste a little your medicine I swear I'll probably always let you in Problem is you made a dopamine, yeah Pulling me down Deep in the water, pulling me down. I'm spared by my lover. Just meet me in the middle. Don't make me act a little like you. Ginger man, ginger man, ginger my baby. Ginger my baby, oh ah. Ginger my baby, oh ah. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. My name is Love More, and if you're looking for it, for? right? My ads, right? Yeah, what are your socials? So My socials. Yeah. I'm Love More, and that's spelled L-O-V-E-M-O-O-R. And then on the platforms, it's like an underscore, underscore to get me. But it'll come up, because nobody else's name is spelled like that. Okay? So follow her. All of the socials, Spotify, Apple, most importantly, follow your girl. You know? Yeah. Um, before you start this... This next song is called Gentle, and with this is just like, I'm in a very new place. I'm super new to LA. I'm super new to Where like- Where did you come from? Birmingham, Alabama. Wow, welcome. When did you move here? I drove the 30 hours, you guys. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. I hope this is a warm welcoming for you. It is, I love this. This feels nice, okay. Um, so like, within all of like me meeting new people, my big thing is I want, I want gentle love. I, I don't, don't be harsh with me for any particular reason. Um, so yeah, like, and I have this bright view on meeting new people, doing new things, and just having fun and being treated 
gently in the in the midst of it, okay? Yeah. Right? We got to communicate these things. So, yeah. Be gentle and enjoy the song. I'm ready now. <laughs> I usually dance a lot, y'all. I just didn't want to get y'all out, y'all, you know, element. But my name is Love More. That's L-O-V-E. Welcome to L-A Love Thanks, y'all. And if y'all like Gentle, I just put out a video for it. Please go watch it. Thank y'all. Yeah, welcome. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. I really like Thank having you. the music in between the, the, the chatter. Um, is kink unique to humans? Is kink unique to humans? Uh, oh. And are you doing any research around that? <laughs> no, now I want to. Um, <laughs> Not around that specifically, but also is around. Is kink unique to humans? That's a great, I, you didn't, I wasn't warned about that one. So, um, <laughs> I mean, bats engage in oral sex. Um, Tell us, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Give us some. Just fire off some animal examples. Oh, God. oh, yeah. there's all sorts of things. Uh, um, uh, there's a there's Give a species of, there's a species of beetle that engages in uh, what's called um, what's it? Oh, what's the term now? Oh, now I'm blanking on the term. It's a great term where the males will pierce through the side of the female. Wow. In order to mate. Uh, <laughs> would someone know what it is? Someone? No. Oh, I can't think of the name. It'll hit me. I'll yell well, out. That's something. certainly dramatic. It's not violent, but that's pretty close. It's uh, 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 oh, it'll hit me. It'll hit me in a minute. Um, there's uh, there's a species of um, a, uh, uh, argonaut uh, octopus. The male will cut it because the females will try to eat the males when they mate. So the males cut off their penetrative organ and throw it at them um, <laughs> to try and. Uh, so there's that. Oh, there's all sorts of things. The animal kingdom is interesting because. 
Um, it is. It's one of the things, the great unifiers of people all over the world, of sexually reproducing species, is how we fumble through our relationships and our sexual lives. Traumatic insemination. Thank you. Sorry. Traumatic? Yeah, like, traumatic. Trauma. Traumatic. Trauma. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It is traumatic. Uh, but... And, so we, uh, so it was in there. Somewhere. It was a terrible hookup. It was traumatic insemination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, um, so we know that there's a lot of species. I mean, there's all sorts. There's, um, uh, there's animals with corkscrew penises. There's all this, uh, but they all become, um, they all become, or actually, has anyone ever, anyone here have large, large dogs, huskies or something like that? Have you ever, have you ever seen the mate? The, so what happens is when they mate, the, uh, the male's penis continues to swell. So we take for granted that humans, the top, the glands of the penis and human males and natal males, the glands is larger than the shaft. That's actually a fairly unique anatomical design. Uh, most species don't have that. So the idea, uh, at least in some, the, what biologists have theorized, is some dogs, large dogs, wolves do this. Big, that's why I asked if anyone has a large dog. As the males mount, the penis continues to swell throughout copulation and then they get stuck. So the females will walk around and you see these males getting dragged by their penis. Um, but the idea being that then another male, if the female's in heat, another male can't mount and try to inseminate oh. until some of his semen possibly is, so it's an adaptation to prevent extra pair copulations. So the animal kingdom is rife with all these examples of twists and turns around sexual reproduction. Um, and, in, and for humans, our relationships our complex, our messy, our exciting, our wonderful relationships are, are part of that story because they're so tethered, at least in evolutionary times, to our reproductive lives. Doesn't mean they have to be or they are today, but the, we can come to understand how some of their uh, ticks. Mm. How does, we're here in LA and there's a lot of content produced here, whether it's games and movies and TV shows and, and the mm -hmm. like, TikTok. Um, how does sexual sexualization of women um, and men in content uh, affect our views on sex? Do you, have you done any research around that? Yeah, and uh, in all sorts of ways. And researchers have some examples. Um, some of you may be familiar with the Bechdel test as an example that sometimes are, is used of, in media and has to do with how with women are portrayed as something other than being the girlfriend or pregnant or, um, or sexualized. So uh, from a gender scholar named Bechdel. And uh, there's all sorts of ways that we sexualize. I mean, I think in some ways I can't wait to watch the new Barbie movie for this very reason, because feminist scholars have written extensively on Barbie and sort of multiple ways. First, the sexualization of, even though there were no genitals, right? These are famously, if you've ever looked at a Barbie. And um, it's good, good science lesson. And um, so there's this sort of sexualization of women well, it's certainly like the idols just come out and yeah. it's had a lot of brouhaha around that. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, so mm -hmm. second wave feminists often talked a lot about the sort of sexualization of women in media. But then third wave feminists pushed back and said, well, some women want to own that femininity. That Camille Paglia yeah. or whomever, right? Yeah. And uh, so, so there's been some sort of interesting tensions around that. My colleague Deb Tolman and, uh, in New York City, it's uh, CUNY Hunter, she writes about what she calls the dilemmas of desire, particularly for young women. And for young women, particularly in media, we so sexualize them. Society sexualizes young women, but we don't want them to ever engage in sexual behavior. So there's this tension for young women of how they explore their own sexual identities and their gender and their sexual desire, even though they're told and to look sexy and act sexy. And I found this book just earlier today. I mean, it was, it was actually behind me. Does anyone remember yeah. this? Naomi Wolf's yeah. Promiscuity. So. Yes, classic reading. Just, yeah, classic. Yeah. <laughs> So those those tensions that uh, that that can happen. I was going to say more about, but what's interesting? Oh, I know what I wanted to say. What's interesting about that is one of the things that we've seen in the data since the pandemic is although people, um, although we think that physical attractiveness is important for in the dating market, and it is right. People, you do expect someone to kind of put their best foot forward. What we found is actually a suite of five things that are more important to Americans in the dating market than ever before. And the data Take note, changed. everyone. Yeah, and the now, I have to, now I have to remember them. I'll see. <laughs> so there's five things, and this has changed over the years. But what is most common, about 90% of people rating these in their top. One, you want people, single Americans, want a partner they can trust and confide in. Right? So it's not physical attractiveness and looks. This was all in the list and the options. They've dropped down. So a partner you can trust and confide in. A, two, a partner that's emotionally mature. Three, a partner that makes you laugh. 
uh, for a partner that is uh, open uh, about their sexuality and are confident, really, in their sexuality. And then five, someone... Oh, now I'm going to forget the last one. Oh, okay. Confident in their sexuality. Well, you're not going anywhere, so... Um, Oh, and then five, I remember. And five, a partner who is um, open to... uh, thinking about and talking about open to communication so that they're willing to talk about what it is that they're interested in. So what that tells us, and I think it's what you said uh, earlier, Susan, it's that what we're seeing, particularly after the pandemic, is more than ever, people are valuing connections. They're, slow, we're valuing slow love. Slow love. Remember slow food. Yeah. Slow everything. Slow love. Yeah. And then slow love. Should I go? Should we go there? Yeah. Talk about slow love. Let's so go. slow love is a pattern. Actually, I mentioned my colleague Helen Fisher earlier. She coined this term. And we've done some studies looking at how people are going slower in our relationships than past generations. So people are uh, getting married at earlier ages, getting, sorry, getting married at earlier ages than in the past. We're taking longer to date. We're, we're kind of hanging out with people for a few months, then they're dating them for a few months, they're your boyfriend or girlfriend for a few months. Um, we're seeing that. And we're seeing that uh, from past generations, right, just a few decades ago, People, our parents, our grandparents' generations, marriage was sort of the start of a relationship. You didn't know each other all that long. Your parents signed off and you got married. What we're seeing, particularly with young people, is marriage is the great finale. They already know everything about each other. They've been with each other for a while. They have lots of information. Um, And it turns out that those relationships that go slower, they are on average a little bit more stable. So compared to couples that date less than a year before they get married, Those that date one to two years are 20% less likely to divorce. And those that date three or more years are 39% less likely to divorce. So taking that time to get to know someone actually makes it a little bit more stable. People are taking more. They want to to know everything about someone before they ultimately marry them. It's a huge shift. It's a monumental shift in what we think about marital norms in America. Grace, do you want to sing anymore? Are you... You don't have to. No. We can do Q&A. Yeah, do you want to do one more? Yeah, let's do one more. Come on, you got an album coming out? Yeah, 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 yeah. You got a lot of practice to do. <laughs> yeah. One more, and then we'll just do a Q&A, and, and then Lena, our DJ, our favorite DJ, wherever she is. <laughs> Staria, yeah. Uh, we'll have some music, more music. Okay, okay. yeah. Um. <laughs> Also, doesn't Grace look like doesn't Grace look like she's ready to go on tour? Look how elegant she's looking. Yeah. Stay up all night. 
Yeah, my name is Grace Weber. Um, thank you, Susan, for having me. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we will all support her album. What, what are you at? You're Grace Weber on Instagram, right? Okay. Okay, good, good, good. Um, questions, yeah. Thank you so much, both of you, and love as well. Uh, questions or, oh, so many. Okay, Passion, let's go with you. Yeah, yes, yes. So, uh, so the question was, is, do we think of infidelity as a, um, is it a flaw of either people or relationships, or is it sort of part of, uh, just part of the natural world? Did I, did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or it could be that gene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a complex one, and it's... Um, I think when we think of infidelity, the challenge is, and anyone who's known someone in a relationship uh, who has uh, committed infidelity or they've suffered because their partner, they had a partner that committed infidelity, I think part of the challenge is there's often uh, finger pointing. There's either self-blame, like, what did I do wrong? What did they do wrong? What do we... And I think the challenge with that is um, sometimes the answer is nothing. Often the answer is nothing, that we have... In some ways, it's baked, infidelity is baked into the story of our sort of as a sexually reproducing species. So famously, there was a study that in the UK that 10% of children are born to dads that are not actually their dads, the, the, not the people who are in the hospital who think they're their dads. So it turns out that if you control for what researchers call uh, Kermit Anderson, an anthropologist said this, paternity certainty. So if you actually ask the dads, do you think you're the dad? that number drops to about 1.5% of dads that are not actually... I'll never forget, in college, I dated someone, and she um, had a picture of her, of her dad, and in the picture, he had a chin dimple. And I said, oh, he has a chin dimple. I said, but you don't have a chin dimple. That's a dominant trait. Um, and oh, no. I know, I know. Oh, I, don't know. No. I don't know what was wrong with me. I was, it was like one of those things that just slipped out, and I was like, oh, God. Um, and then she started laughing. She's like, it was just shadow in the picture. And I was like, oh, okay. And then she's like, why on earth would you say that to someone? Uh, <laughs> and, and I, but we, uh, so now go home and check your parents' chin dimples. And, um, but, but the point being that we do, at, an, at a non-negligible rate, there is infidelity that actually has reproductive consequences and relationship consequences. Um, it's not, I, I really caution against the idea that it's someone's fault or that it's a flaw or that it's, it's sort of just baked into the natural 
story of being, because we form intense bonds, because we form these intense romantic relationships, it's sort of the, the price we pay is that it hurts so bad. They feel so good when you're in them, but it hurts so bad when they feel violated in some ways. And that's the sort of, the, the sort of psychic price of those relationships. Um, but infidelity, in the one study, is eight different reasons. It can happen for a whole host of reasons. And it's, I mean, sometimes, yes, sometimes there is a reason. There is, a, there is someone at fault. There is, but often it's, there's so many different factors at play I, I always caution that it could be really hard to then distill that down to like, what could I have done differently? And, I, and I, I think in many ways, it's the wrong questions to ask ourselves, unless it was something kind of obvious. Like you say, oh, I was in a relationship and I haven't talked to the person in six months and they cheated on me. Well, then, okay, yeah, you screwed up. Um, <laughs> but, but there's, um, there's well, unless you could, I mean, who knows, maybe you were in prison and you couldn't talk to them. And they'd be, there's all sorts of different dynamics in people's real real lives life is nuanced right yeah. and every, everyone mm-hmm. is it's an original story mm-hmm. um other questions anyway yes <laughs> okay. okay 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 i'm wondering uh, does the lack of community in our current society factor into issues in relationships okay does lack of community in our oh there is okay okay are we using romance for replacement for have you noticed a breakdown in platonic friendships in favor of romance? And could community and platonic friendships be a gentler way of leaving a fulfilling artist? I mean, hello, salons. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. No, I think it's a perfect... Uh, hello. It you is. might meet the love of your night <laughs> when you come the second or third time. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know any relationships that have started at salons? Many. That's a good yeah, question. Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Salons are a hotbed of relationships. I love it. Well, you got yeah. beds all over the place. Yeah. Um, so, so, <laughs> so we, um, I'm going to work backwards, I think, a little bit through them, if that's okay. And then please help me if I, so um, I think, uh, I don't think that friendships and community are a replacement for romantic bonds. Um uh, I think they're important. They're, they're, they're wildly important to the human animal. We are a social species through and through. And having those bonds, having places to connect over shared ideas, to think, to have people around to hear them, to feel them, to smell them, to taste them, to touch them, invoke the bodily senses and human interaction, we need that to flourish. Um, so, so I think that there's that. But romantic relationships, they do something interesting. And all the fMRI and the PET scan studies where we put people into brain scanners and look at their brain activation, when we look at physiological measurements, there's something unique about romantic relationships. There's something unique about those bonds. Um, It's not just attachment. It's not just sex. There's this sort of um, this uh, intoxicating mix that happens in our romantic bonds. But they're not devoid of all the other social stuff. So anthropologists have this expression they use that it takes a family to raise a child and it takes a village to raise a family. And it's the idea that we're nested in layers of social interaction. And our relationships are like that, too. We, I mean, we all know that. Your kin, we were just talking about this earlier. Our kin weigh in on our, um, you're on dating someone and you show your friends and your family the dating profile on the app. Or um, your parents don't like them and you stop seeing them. There's not a species on this planet that kin are as involved in mating as it is the human. Um, so, so we know that that social stuff is also playing. So I think community is important. But it's not a replacement for romantic bonds. Now, there's a subset of people, though. There are people who uh, are asexual and aromantic. Um, and my colleague Jessica Hilly at the Kinsey Institute studies, studies these, um, those people. And the community often looks quite different in those populations because, in some ways, they maybe aren't just interested in a romantic bond or a sexual bond. So community and friendships take on different roles. I guess off the back of like an Esther Perel or even a Susan Sari. Yeah. How much fresher do you think there are on this generation of relationships versus you know the close proximity of like past generations like our grandparents who couldn't travel as much and now have want our lover to be our best friend, our business partner, our ultimate sexual partner, mm-hmm. all the elements that we place on this sort of our soul uh, soulmate, if you will. Uh, how eligible are those for the partners in today's age versus previous generations? 
Sure, I love that that question. So when we think about, are we we're asking so much of our partners compared to the past? Uh, Ansari's book uses our singles in America data actually for most of those examples, uh, and and match data. So um, uh, exactly, my my colleague and my friend Esther Perel famously talks about this. The idea is actually from a kernel from a psychologist Eli Finkel at Northwestern, and he has a wonderful book called The All or Nothing Marriage. And what he argues is that in the past we would turn to that whole village for our support of, different, of meeting our needs in different ways. And maybe even friends that had different, I mean, many, if you start to think of your friends, you maybe have the one friend you call when you're really an emotional wreck, you have the other one you call when you want to party, you have the other one call when you, um, but that we often expect our partners to do all of that and that that creates an unexpected tension. The same person that you want to hold your hair when you're puking in the toilet from food poisoning, you want the next day to tell you, honey, I want to have sex with you because I'm so attracted to you. That our demands of our partners are sort of too much. We want them to do everything, to be our center of our eroticism, our emotional support, our physical well-being, and that it can be too much. The question, though, the, uh, I think in that is what's the solution? So we have gotten to this place. I think also your question earlier about what's changed. Um, We've gotten to a place that we expect so much of our partners, and then, but then how do you diffuse that? And then how do you diffuse it in a way that don't make partners jealous when the social expectation is that what we do, but that's what we do with our partners. So it's, it's, there's not easy solutions to that, but we do know that community and friends are a part of that story, right? That well, it, it doesn't... can diffuse our, our needs from yeah, our partners. Yeah, right? exactly. Can, Having other people yeah. to talk to, um, you know, there is... Uh, so in like relationships therapy uh, and couples therapy, sometimes people, couples will work through, you know, every night you come home and talk about your boss and the problems that you have with your boss. I'm just making up an example. You kind of talk about the problems you have with your boss. Well, at some point you need to have an outlet other than your partner. Your partner shouldn't have to work another hour every day to hear your <laughs> problems about your boss. Right. And that, but that, because that, if that's what becomes the thing, that you're centering your relationship, even if unintentionally, that there's this, there's this. Well, it's boring. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of the things in couples, and when we think about the science of relationships, one way I like to think about it is when you're in a relationship, there's three entities you need to worry about. You have to worry about yourself, you have to worry about your partner, and you have to worry about the we, the couple, the sort of the, the super organism that emerges from that relationship. And what are the things that you together need to be thinking about and supporting each other in one? Mm-hmm. We'll just do one or two more questions, but you're not going to go anywhere. I want to give Lena some time to yeah. DJ, which will be nice to and, and dance bef- if you bef- want. And also just on people on their way out, we brought some Kinsey swag. So as, you, as you're kind of, yeah, yeah. So, so Natalie by the door. So we have some notebooks from the Kinsey Institute you ha- yeah, and you have a, stickers. And, yeah. What's your question? Yep. So I'm wondering um, how much of your research is uh, based culturally. So even within the United States, there's so many different types of cultures even between, you know, uh, heterosexual or homosexual mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And then also it seems like, you know, in France, everyone has a paramour, or every, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, other places, mm-hmm. uh, the dating scene is extremely restricted, or yeah. people have multiple wives, or multiple Well, I mean, even in L.A., there's that, right? You have stereotypes of, like, what the gays are like on the west side in comparison to the east side, or in Manhattan, <laughs> what, like, they're... You know, they're doing over there in downtown, right? Yeah. 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 I love it. So one of the things I think people often, um, not, not saying that you, you're not you, but the people often misunderstand when we think, so I'm an evolutionary biologist and anthropologist by training, and they often assume that, um, that because you're talking about biologies or genes or brains, that it occurs in a vacuum. Biology is always expressed in an environment, right? Every environment is, has natural organisms, and an, an organism is always in an, in an environment, an ecosystem by which it expresses itself. So you're right. There's different cultures that, you know, we can think about, let's take Americans take kissing so seriously. 50% of people have kissed someone and said they knew instantly there was no chemistry, right? We take for granted that kissing should happen, uh, often in the first few dates, uh, uh, 52% of people say you shouldn't make out in the first three dates. Uh, no, you shouldn't make out on the first date, but if you don't do it by the end of the third date, you probably have a problem, right? So that we think that kissing is really important. We did a study looking at over 100, and, I think we looked at 168 societies using that cross-cultural record. 
um, uh, the, what's called the Iharaf, what anthropologists use. Only 46% of societies engage in romantic kissing and erotic kissing. And a lot of them, when you look at, we take it for granted that it's part of courtship. And there's people all over the world that say, you like that person, why would you spit in their mouth? <laughs> and, right? and so we, we except to your point, you're right. And then within that, there's, right, we, there's a lot of focus right now in sex research and relationship science on uh, sexual orientation difference, racial and ethnic difference. Turns out a lot of the racial and ethnic differences, at least in the U.S., is not driven by race per se. It's driven by religion, and religion systematically varies. Religious attitudes systematically vary by race. So there's all sorts of ways that different groups have different norms around. I mean, certainly go on uh, different apps that are for different groups, right? whether it's for gay men or sh straight women. or um, There's different norms and cultures. So that is important. We just did, I'll end on one more, we just did a study where we looked at dating, um, at dating across five countries, a multinational study. Uh, and in that, you can see examples that also tie on to sort of what we were thinking about earlier with gender questions, that tie on to gender equity in the nations. So in a lot of places, so we're seeing rising rates of uh, dating app use in India, Japan. Uh, so we looked at India, Japan, Turkey, Germany, and the UK. Um, and... What we see is in some cases where gender equity isn't as equal, that people were turning to apps as a way to sort of reclaim some autonomy in their dating lives. So you're right, there's always, there's always cultural factors. They're, not, they're never divorced from the biological. Anyway, I could go on for hours about that. So yeah. I think you're not going to go anywhere. So no. if anyone has any more questions, you know, take it outside or do it in here. But yeah. I want to give Lena, who's our DJ. I, yeah. She's... You can follow her on Instagram at I am Staria. Mm -hmm. She's been releasing new tracks and new songs all summer, right? How many, Lena? Many, <laughs> many, many, many. So follow her on Instagram, and I just want to give her a chance yeah. to be able to play. So thank you so much, Justin. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Great. Thank yep, you, everyone. Yep, yep. Yeah. And... I want to, so thank you for flying out here. I also want to encourage all of you. It's great that you're a guest here. I love it. I would love to be a guest in your home. And during COVID, uh, Molly, who's somewhere around here, she's the editor of it. But, you know, obviously the salon hosting business wasn't great during COVID. And so we, uh, we built this whole website, like how to host your own salon, basically how to host and to do it really imperfectly and do it cheaply and messily. So I'd love to be a guest. I'd like to encourage you guys to do this on a smaller scale. You don't need to have 100 people over to your home. But, you know, build community. Maybe you'll get some great sex as a result. Maybe you'll get a great relationship. Maybe business <laughs> will be good. But build some community around yourselves. That would be really awesome. Yeah. yeah. So thank you so much, guys, Thanks. for coming. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Post-Hoc Digital Salon with Susan McTavish-Best. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a great review. It really does make a difference. If you don't already, please make sure to follow us on social media at McTavish-Best on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for attending our digital salon. <laughs>